Last week I talked about Jesus' nature, and I'm doing a, a three-week series just on the person of Jesus, which is really fun. This week we're going to talk about his works. But um, before we get started, when John mentioned the Bible, I was just reminded of how much I love the written word. Don't you guys love the Bible? How many encounters, how many revelations have you had just as you read those scriptures? There is no book as anointed as that book. I, uh, one time I met this, this convict who had uh, been imprisoned for years, and uh, it, was, it was looking like he wasn't going to get out. He was facing the, the death sentence, and, uh, and he really um, he tried hard to be a good man, at the, and at the end of his life, all he had were just a few letters that he wrote to other believers. He just wrote, wrote them to encourage these, these places that he had been, that he had preached at. His name is Paul. And at the end of his life, all he had were a few letters. And you can hear an element of sorrow in his heart in his last, uh, in his last letter where he's saying, you know, I've, I've run the race. I've run a good race. And, um, and he, he's actually facing a, a time when most of his churches are in complete chaos. <laughs> and some of them are preaching completely false doctrines. There's these false prophets and apostles that are trying to seed themselves into these churches that he planted. And at the end of his life, all he has are a couple letters. Which really goes to show that um, you can't judge your own life until you stand before him because those few letters have been the foundation of our faith. The half of the New Testament came from a convict who didn't know if he made any impact at all. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> so it may look like you are having no impact whatsoever, but just keep loving because when you stand before him, you're going to see nations that have come to Jesus because of your love. Yeah. That was a freebie. <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, pull that over for me? So uh, last week we talked about Jesus' nature. This week we're going to talk about his works. And next week I'm going to talk about his legacy. And uh, I want to start off uh, just by talking about this, this villain over here. I want you guys to hang with me, and uh, let's ponder about who this person is. Who is it that continually reminds us that we are unpleasant and sinful creatures to God? Who, who causes sin to increase? Who's, who's the guy that holds us prisoner? Who is it that controls us, that controls spirit? Who is this guy that is friends with the religiously dead? Shout it out. Satan? Satan? The accuser, right? The accuser of the brethren. What about if we start doing this? <laughs> His name is Rom from Planet Nebula. <laughs> what? 
If any of you are, are, are uh, Bible, uh, holding, a, holding a Bible, you can turn to one of these and you'll, you'll start to catch on where I'm going. Oops. You see this last one? It's First Timothy one nine. It's the accuser of the brethren, also known as the law. See, uh, there's this guy. Uh, his name is Satan. He also goes by the accuser of the brethren, and it says in Revelation that he continually goes about accusing the saints day and night. How can he have something to accuse us? By what I mean, what is the thing that gives his accusation power? The law. He's not just like roaming through the spirit realm, going nainer nainer boo boo. You stink. Like <laughs> you're good for nothing. You're not going to amount to anything. No, he's actually using the law to accuse the saints day and night. Do you know what the, the law, some of the things that the law tells us we have to do? Anyone in here want to be made righteous by the law? Anyone? No? That's a trick question. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Hang with me. <clears throat> I'm not making fun of the Bible here, but these are some of the things written in the law. You may eat no pork. Wah, wah. Man, I love pulled pork sandwiches. <laughs> no, cancel men's breakfast. We don't want to go to hell. <laughs> you can't eat any meat from a split hoofed animal. You can't eat shellfish, so no lobster or oysters. My wife loves oysters. May she never eat them again. That was a bad case of food poisoning. <laughs> You can eat them again. Um, there are hundreds of species of birds that you can't eat. Any animals with paws. Uh, you can't eat, yes, don't eat Lassie. Um, it, within the law, you're not allowed to eat anything that creeps upon the earth, like mice, lizards, snails. That I don't have a problem with. And you can't eat anything with fat or blood in it, which eliminates our steakhouses. This would be really sad if the law was initiated in Texas, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's all out of Leviticus 3.11. What else is in the law? You can't wear torn clothing. Anybody have holes in their jeans? I, I mean, that was a trend like seven years ago. Sanders. <laughs> you also can't wear clothing with mixture in it. So, like, lycra, that would be the end of the curse of the yoga pants, hallelujah. <laughs> you can't cut your hair or your beard. Uh, you can have no tattoos. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> uh, if you have a garden, you can only have one species of plant in it. Uh, you can't crossbreed animals, which there's proof that a labradoodle is an abomination. <laughs> you cannot touch carcasses. Never touch anything dead. 
Um, oh man, this one is going to get awkward. After giving birth, a new mother has to stay out of church for 33 days if she gave birth to a boy, 66 days if she gave birth to a girl. You cannot attend church after drinking. <laughs> We'll leave that one alone. <laughs> Everyone's wondering if I had a shot before I got up here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, which would be the end of the NFL. Sorry, Drake. <laughs> Depending on what you think the Sabbath is, you know. It's... Uh, <laughs> Um, let's see. Any person who curseth his mother or father must be killed. Whoa. I love my parents, but I'd be dead several times over. <laughs> um, any psychics and, or wizards are to be stoned to death. We go raid all the uh, <laughs> psychic booths. If you find a city that worships a different god, you are to destroy that city and kill all of its inhabitants. <laughs> Even the animals. <laughs> I think I'll stop there. <laughs> See, as a, as a boy, I would actually lay asleep awake. Or, I mean, sorry. I would lay in my bed awake at night, sometimes for hours, repenting of every known sin that I could possibly conjure up in my brain that I may have committed that day. Because if I died in my sleep, I didn't want to go to hell. Or if Jesus came back, or got, everyone got raptured, I didn't want to be the guy left behind. Where did that, where did that come from? Well, it came from bad teaching. Or it came from uh, reading the Word without a proper understanding of the character of my Father in Heaven. And I certainly would not take communion like we did today without repenting of every sin that I could think of because I didn't want to drink judgment upon myself. Where does that come from? It comes from bad teaching. Or it comes from reading the Word without having a proper understanding of His great love towards us. That it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. It is His gentleness that makes us great. So, the accuser of the brethren is empowered by the law. The reason he can make us feel terrible is because uh, it, he can only make us feel terrible when we believe that we are still under the law. Check this out. No one will be declared righteous by the law. That's Romans 3.20. The law is powerless because it's weakened by sinful nature, Romans 8.3. The law causes death, Galatians 2.19. No one is justified before God through the law, Galatians 3.11. The law actually empowers anti-Semitism. It is a wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That's Ephesians 2.14 and 15. So Jesus abolished the law with its commandments and regulations. The law made nothing perfect, so a better hope is introduced. Hebrews 7.19 Paul also argued that the covenant established at Mount Sinai was a ministry of death and condemnation. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 9. So... <clears throat> 
we have this thing called the law that Jesus actually came to be the end of. It says in Romans 10.4, by abolishing in his flesh the law with all of its commandments and regulations. That's Ephesians 2.15. I know I'm reading a lot of scripture. Hang with me. I just feel the power on the scripture. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulation that was against us instead opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Hebrews 7.18. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. Hebrews 8.13. The law is only a shadow of the good things that have come. Hebrews 10.1 Jesus said, don't, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill them. And it says in Romans 10.4 that Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Galatians 5. See, Jesus said that the law would not disappear until, what? It's accomplished. Do you know what his last words before he gave up his spirit were as he hung on the cross? It is accomplished. Which means that he's paved a new way called grace. Last week, I, uh, I actually denounced the law uh, flippantly, and, and then I walked away regretting taking the time to tell you why I did that. Um, the reason I denounced the law flippantly is because it doesn't apply to anyone in this room if you are a believer. You are no longer under the power of the law. I will tell you the one good purpose. Everyone breathe. The one good purpose of the law. Again, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It is to frustrate the unsaved into calling for a savior. The law is an ocean that we drown in until we have the courage to call out for a savior and he will scoop us out of that sea of trying to be perfected in our own strength and set us on a rock called the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness will be transferred into us and we will forever be declared clean and holy and righteous. Now that is some good news. If you are drowning in an ocean of trying to be good, please call on a Savior right now. His name is Jesus. And he will snatch you from that raging sea called the law and place you on a rock called grace. <laughs> Woo, Jesus! Man, we love you. Woo. My favorite verse about what grace really is is found in Titus 2.11. And it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So it's not fake grace. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. 
has appeared to all men, and it empowers us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You know, grace uh, can't actually be empowered in any way other than mercy. In other words, His mercy is what activates grace in your life. None of us get that empowering grace to say no to ungodliness until we encounter His real mercy. See, me, the, the way that Jesus won me over is um, he just, he's, he's so uncontrolling. He just did, did, would not control me. He let me make the worst decisions in the world for years. And all the time, he's just looking at his account called the blood of Christ, saying, well, yeah, that's going to pay for all that. And so he'd forgive me, and forgive me, and forgive me. I'd sin the same thing over and over and over, and he'd forgive me. I'd sin the same way, he'd forgive me. Until one day, I realized that he wasn't going to stop. And suddenly, this revelation of his kindness and mercy caused me to move from a place where I was going to try to please him from my own effort to a place where I was motivated by his love that I couldn't help but serve and follow a man that was so kind and so merciful. That's called grace. So some of the things that Jesus did for us. He was our representative obedience. In other words, where Adam disobeyed, he obeyed perfectly. And you know what? Adam had it really easy. Jesus had it harder than anyone. In other words, Adam was in paradise with open communion with God the Father, where it's so easy to choose God, but he chose darkness instead. And so Satan has a boast. It's that boast. God, you created man to love you, placed him in paradise where it was so easy to choose you, but he chose me. That is Satan's boast. And it is still ringing in the heavens right now. Which is why Jesus had to come, do away with the written code, give us his righteousness, and as time goes on, we know that we are going to be in the darkest ages of all of history there are going to be believers that are surrounded by sexual insanity, depravity of every kind, where it is so easy to choose the enemy, but we're going to choose God. And that boast is going to be reversed. And the saints and the Father will all say, where it was so easy to choose the enemy, in the presence of perfect darkness, we chose light. Jesus uh, is also our substitute sacrifice. He died in our place to pay the penalty for us. Jesus is also our mediator between God and men. See, we needed one person that could represent us to God and that could also represent God to us. It's Jesus. Jesus fulfilled God's original purpose for man to rule over all of creation he showed us, I mean, he's our big brother, and he showed us what we get to do as his brothers and sisters, which is rule over creation. Calm, 
calm storms, walk on water, raise the dead, turn water into wine, rule over creation, multiply food. You are the most powerful determining factor in any room, any city, any country that you walk into. Jesus also came to be our example and pattern in this life. He, like I said, He is the firstborn of many, what? Brethren. Brethren. So where's brothers and sisters? See, He was the firstborn, and if you have a rich father, what does the firstborn get? The company, the inheritance, whatever. So he came and, and he wanted us to get the inheritance that belonged to him. And so he died before us so that the inheritance would pass to us. Whoa. Wow. Oh. Sure. Woohoo! He's the firstborn who deserves the inheritance, but he so wanted us to have it that he died so it would pass to you and me. Amen. Wow. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus, I love you. Woo. Let's enjoy his presence. Woo. Yeah, Lord. <laughs> Holy Ghost. Let's be the most foolish-looking wise people on planet Earth. Bada bing. Woo! <laughs> oh, Jesus is also our sympathetic high priest. You know what the best way to sympathize with someone is? To go through the same junk that they have to go through. So Jesus went through all the same junk and more that we have to go through. In fact, it says that he was tempted in every single way and yet did not sin. Yeah. That way, he's not the kind of, he's not, we understand that he's not the kind of God that looks down on us and says, why can't you get it right like I did? When we go to him in our struggle, he says, I know it's rough. I've been there. Because he's tempted in every way. In every depraved way that Satan could tempt him. He was tempted, and that's why when we go to him, we receive mercy and kindness instead of judgment. Because he's been there. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is a rule breaker. Any, any, like, closet rebels in the room? <laughs> Question the way society works? That was Jesus. He's a rule breaker. In fact, there are five times, five times within 28 verses that Jesus breaks all these cultural and religious rules. It's in Mark chapter 2. I love this chapter. Jesus comes along, and in verse 5, he forgives someone of their sins and heals that paralyzed man. Woo! John mentioned the Pharisees. They were ticked. So annoyed and enraged that Jesus had the gall, the gumption, <laughs> to say, your sins are forgiven. 
And then he says to the Pharisees, well, what's easier? To say to him, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. And actually, if you count the words, your sins are forgiven is easier than take up your mat and walk. (laughs) (laughs) And so this man is completely healed by Jesus's kindness. He just kept breaking rules, though. That wasn't enough. He ate with sinners. He went to their houses. He probably joked around with them and enjoyed their company. (laughs) Oh, man. And... The Pharisees really didn't like that. So why does he eat with these sinners? Doesn't he know what type of people they are? It wasn't enough, though. In in verse 18, while all the Pharisees and teachers of the law and John's disciples were fasting, it was a season of fasting. Everyone's fasting. Jesus is mowing down on a feast. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a dinner. And they're like, why are we going to turn down a good dinner? <laughs> and he's fasting. And the Pharisees are furious. They're, they come up and they question Jesus' disciples. And they say, we're fasting. And John's disciples are fasting too. <laughs> but you go on eating and drinking. <laughs> That's my impersonation of a Pharisee. (laughs) That was not enough. Jesus really had to demonstrate even more freedom from these rules. Six verses later, he and his Pharisees, that motley crew, are walking along the edge of a field on the Sabbath, and they what? Pick heads of grain from the field and eat them, which was unlawful to do. And then Jesus says something spectacular, because the Pharisees confront him once again. They're saying, they're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, you know, picking heads off grain. And Jesus says, haven't you read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? They went in and ate the showbread, which was unlawful for anyone to do other than the priest. It, It actually carries a death sentence. But David, in the Old Covenant, actually peered into the New Covenant. And just like Jesus on that day when he was hungry, he's like, there's showbread, I'm going to eat it. (laughs) And he stepped into a freedom ahead of his time. That's why he didn't die. He did it in faith. So Jesus keeps on, keeps on demonstrating this freedom from rules and, and regulation. Um, and he's not, he's not like the kind of guy that's just trying to like annoy people for fun. He's not like sticking it to the, the Pharisees. He just, this is how he lives. He doesn't actually recognize their rules as important. He might not even recognize them at all. He's just living life as a free man. But it really comes to a head a little, little while later when Jesus and his, his friends 
eat dinner without washing their hands first. <laughs> Which is gross, but... <laughs> you know, maybe they were real hungry. <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't any soap around. You know, they, just, they ate food that was set in front of them and then they didn't ceremonially wash their hands first. And man, the Pharisees really laid into him for that. And that's when Jesus had had enough. And he says something. I'm going to read word for word out of Mark chapter 7. This is chapter 7, verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of our elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And then Jesus quotes Isaiah. This is not a verse that, Je that you want Jesus to apply to your life. <laughs> Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are but what? Rules. Their teachings are nothing but rules taught by men. I actually, I flipped back to Isaiah um, to read the original and, and found something really bizarre. Um, the, uh, the actual, the original in Isaiah 29, 13, it says, um, their worship is nothing but rules taught by men. So Jesus does this pretty cool thing here and, and he equates like actual anointed teaching where like there's a revelation of the, of the Christ, anointed teaching is the same as worship. Isn't that cool? I say that because I like to teach. <laughs> <laughs> but Jesus is saying something. Your teachings are nothing but rules. Anyone ever been... Uh, struggling with some kind of sin and you go for a, you know, some wise counsel with, with a mentor or a youth leader or your pastor. And uh, you know, they, they say this, um, you know, you're, you're real heartfelt, you're like, I'm, I'm just struggling. I, I'm, I just seem to keep on falling into this sin. And they say, uh, well, have you tried harder? <laughs> have you thought about not sinning? <laughs> Maybe try that. <laughs> Is there a lot of power on that kind of counsel? Do you suddenly, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. I haven't tried not sinning. I haven't tried try harder. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Do this, don't do that. Do not taste, do not touch. Do not handle. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. At the beginning of the book of John, Jesus is called, what's he called? Matthew? At the beginning of the book of John, what is Jesus' title? 
takes away from the, the word. word. Oh, oh, I got it, Matthew. Nice. <laughs> All you men in here looking for a wife, let me tell you, Bible knowledge is hot. <laughs> Good job, baby. Jesus is called the Word. He is the Word made flesh. Cool revelation in that is that the Word is still being made flesh in you. <laughs> so, what do you think is the strongest force in the universe? His word. He spoke everything into existence, and yes, his, his word does come through love. But the most powerful force in all the universe, what keeps everything spinning and in perfect harmony and union, is his word. It just says the whole universe. <laughs> I like that boldness, man. <laughs> the whole universe is about... <laughs> There's freedom up in here today. The whole universe is upheld by the power of His Word. The whole universe is upheld by Jesus, the Creator. He is the Word. How are you going to undo that? How are you going to stop the word? Is there any way? It says in Isaiah 55:11 that just like when the rains are sent on the earth to produce crops, his voice, his word, when it is sent out, will not return to him what? Void, Void or null. So Jesus and his posse eat dinner with unclean hands. They get confronted, and then he drops this indictment on them that your teachings are but rules taught by men. You honor me with your lips. Your heart is far from me. And then he says that there is one way to make void the word of God. It says in Mark 7.13, you nullify the word of God by your traditions. I couldn't believe that because I'd read Isaiah 55.11 where it says you can't make void the word of God. But Jesus comes along and he says the one thing that is making useless the word of God in your heart is your traditions. So I looked it up. I was like, nullify the word. It says to render or declare legally void or inoperative and to nullify a contract. To deprive something of value or effectiveness. To make futile or of no consequence. To make the word of God useless. Invalidate it. Bring it to nothing to cancel it out. See, Jesus has come. He is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And the only reason they can't see it is because he came in a way that they didn't expect. It didn't line up with their traditions. 
It was something that they had never seen before. <laughs> My album is five dollars. So Jared's album is amazing. It's out there as well. <clears throat> and Eric Rolls, yes. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus came, and we just you know listed off a bunch of the things that he did. But those people that they, they couldn't see him for who he was because they weren't used to that kind of freedom. They'd never seen anything like that before. And there's actually time after time after time that when Jesus shows up or an apostle shows up under the power of the Holy Spirit and he does something and it offends, the, it offends everyone. That even in John 6, Jesus' closest friends are offended with him. They're offended at Jesus. And it says in 666, John 666, they, they depart from him and follow him no longer. Which means to me that uh, Jesus is probably going to show up again in ways that we don't expect. If his closest buddies got offended at one of his teachings and followed him no longer, what makes us think that we'll never be offended? It stands to reason that we will be. He's going to show up and it's going to feel weird. It's going to look weird. It's, that's, that doesn't line up with what I thought the Bible said, but it's actually going to be Jesus. Someone once said that the enemy, the biggest enemy of the current move of God is a member of the past move of God. Because wow. it didn't look like it did at Azusa Street. Right. It didn't look like it did in John G. Lake's tent. Right. It doesn't look like it did in Toronto. Yeah. It doesn't look like it did in, uh, what's that place? Pensacola. <laughs> or Lakeland. Because he's coming in new ways. Jesus just, he is himself. He's not like trying to offend people. He just comes and he's himself. And when our minds get offended, it reveals the heart so that can, there can be corporate deliverance. Wow. <clears throat> but, if we prefer our traditions and our comfort over following the Spirit, then we will render Jesus powerless in our church. The good news is, it's way more fun to follow the Holy Spirit, so let's just do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's way more fun just to not judge. So let's just do that. Yeah. Following the Spirit is a blast. It is the greatest adventure that you will ever step into. Could you imagine being one of those guys, in the, one of the disciples in the boat and watching Jesus walk on the water towards you? Guys, they were afraid of the storm, but they were terrified who got in the boat. <laughs> that is going to be fun. 
We might be entering a storm in our entire nation, in our city. There might be natural disasters that, that might strike some fear in hearts. But I tell you that you will be terrified when he gets in the boat. That's my Jesus. That's your Jesus. That is our Jesus. Jesus.